This episode is brought to you by Harris Resort SoCal. Nestled against a rolling hillside and just down the road from Palomar Mountain, guests at Harris Resort SoCal can expect gorgeous views, friendly staff, available night and day to encourage everyone to have a great time. When I was there recently, I had a chance to dine at California's first and the nation's largest house kitchen. And it's true, the beef wellington and sticky toffee dessert are great. The restaurant is inspired by the hit TV show and features a menu approved by the Michelin star celebrity chef, Gordon Ramsay himself. Hope to see you all at Harris Resort SoCal in 2024. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, I'm Viet Thanh Nguyen. I am a professor at USC, a scholar and a writer, mostly known as a novelist, but also a nonfiction writer as well. Welcome to the Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. When you began teaching at USC, I was on my way out. I think we overlapped for one year and throughout those years, we've run into each other. I've run into you at uh, different book signing events or at the mall even. And I, I never really had a chance to tell you how much I appreciate the work that you do. Because when I was growing up, we didn't have voices to, to turn to. Young men like me, uh, we were um, constantly looking for heroes that we could turn to, to, to make sense of the chaos that we went through here in the U.S. after our parents resettled here. So I want to thank you for the work that you've done. And I've never been able to tell you that. So thank you so much. I've, it's changed a lot for, for men like me. Well, I mean, you were nice, Ken. You didn't mention that we also saw each other at parties as well. <laughs> it wasn't all just like high-minded stuff, you know, but when you showed up at USC, it was with your brother as well, Tom. And you, you know, you, it was very clear that you guys were Marines, uh, or at least with you. And I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. These are Vietnamese American uh, veterans. And given my experience with Vietnamese veterans, I wasn't quite sure what to make out of the two of you, but you both became uh, creatives and artists uh, in your own right. And, you know, have been a part of this slightly younger generation who have done their best to look past some of the issues of the past, um, you know, the war and, and all the divisions between Vietnamese people to try to create Vietnamese communities and also to return to Vietnam and to build these ties of commerce and art. So I, I feel you know, like if I played a small part in that, then, then that makes me feel great. You played a, a huge part uh, in inspiring a lot of us to continue uh, when things get hard. 
you know, along our journey, it's, you know, we look up to that and we can, we actually have discussions about it constantly in, in our groups. So what does uh, being Vietnamese mean to you? How has it changed or has it even changed for you throughout the years? Well, you know, I grew up in uh, the United States. I came when I was four and I grew up in a very Vietnamese household. Um, it was my parents, my brother and me. And my parents told me all the time that I was 100% Vietnamese and sent me to Vietnamese language school on Sundays. And we went to Vietnamese mass and I grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community. So part of me was very Vietnamese and, and still is um, in the sense that I feel a great attachment to Vietnamese people, Vietnamese culture and so on. Uh, and I think it was partly due to the fact that I was also born in Vietnam and, and spent the first four years of my life there. So even though I don't remember Vietnam, the fact that all that happened and that I grew up in this Vietnamese uh, community and language have been very important. Now, at the same time, when I was growing up in San Jose, um, California in the 1970s and 1980s, and then when I went to school at the University of California, what was also very clear to me was that I was also quite American at the same time. You know, I was fluent in English. I was an English major. And my Vietnamese was not that great. You know, when I came to the United States, I was fluent in Vietnamese at a four-year-old level. And I've stayed fluent in Vietnamese at a four-year-old level. Um, and in the 70s and 80s, almost every Vietnamese American that I knew of my age was actually pretty good in Vietnamese. They grew up in Vietnamese um, households where there were a lot of relatives and so on. They, so they were they all knew at least some Vietnamese. And I think they saw me as an American or as a whitewash or a banana, whatever you want to call it. And I look around now at the current generation of kids in their teens and 20s, and I feel like I was ahead of my time by about 20 or 30 years because none of these kids speak Vietnamese or speak very little Vietnamese <laughs> and don't have American names and all that kind of thing. But I was ahead of my time, okay? but. What that made me think about was exactly this question that you asked. What is Vietnamese and how do you define authenticity and everything? I had parents saying I was 100% Vietnamese. And then in the, in the 1990s, as soon as uh, the United States ended its embargo of Vietnam, my parents went back twice. And then after the second time they came back over Thanksgiving dinner, my father said to me, we're Americans now. Wow. So... You know, even just 20 years after the end of the war in their return, they discovered that they themselves had changed and maybe the country itself had changed. And so I think that for a lot of Vietnamese people who come to the United States, they hang on to these notions of authenticity and being Vietnamese. And it's very important to them for obvious reasons, right? And then they need people who are not Vietnamese to define themselves against their kids, their grandkids, or people like me. And I was one of those people who was not Vietnamese in their eyes. And yet I felt that I was Vietnamese of some kind or another. So I learned to distrust from an early age the question that you're asking, because it leads people to define Vietnamese-ness in one way or another, and to define other people as not being Vietnamese enough. And of course, that can be because of culture or language or politics. And I think it's all just very dangerous once we get into this question. I think for me, anybody who has Vietnamese ancestry is Vietnamese. And we each make being Vietnamese our own thing. Right. And when we're in exile or in the diaspora or for whatever we want to call it, when we're outside of Vietnam, the attachment to being Vietnamese and defining it in a particular way takes on added urgency because we don't want to lose our culture, our heritage or whatever. But then we create others and that's dangerous. And then when you go to Vietnam, I think, the Viet I don't know if the Vietnamese go around spending all their time thinking, 
how do you define being Vietnamese? And I think in Vietnam, it's like in the United States, Americans don't go around most of the time thinking, how are we Americans? I mean, it comes up obviously sometimes when it comes to uh, casting people out. Now in the United States, we say, oh, these people are Americans, these people are not Americans. And that's bad, that's dangerous. But most of the time, Americans, whatever they do is being American. So you go to Vietnam and there's so many different ways of being Vietnamese. You know, you could be Vietnamese and you'd be poor in a village and never gotten on an airplane or you could be Vietnamese in a city and drive a Lamborghini. How is that being Vietnamese? I don't get it, but that is being Vietnamese. So being Vietnamese is just like being American. It's like a thousand different ways of doing that. So why do we, as Vietnamese refugees or Vietnamese Americans, feel the need to ask that question? And I want to ask the question of your question, you know, because I think it is very logical and, and for people to want an attachment and to want to define their culture. But people have to really think about how that's also really dangerous when we get into defining who is or isn't a part of something, who is inside and who is outside. And it can be very innocuous, obviously, because we make jokes about it all the time. You know, like, tell me where the best pho restaurant is. Don't tell me where the white people eat their pho, right? But then the bad part is, you know, we cast people outside of our community. And that can be really, really dangerous. So ask the question. It's a good one, but also be aware of the, of the implications of it. In the beginning, setting out to ask that question, we realized that there's so many similarities to other diasporas, other Exodus uh, stories. There's a body of words that describe what once was a very unique experience right after the war. So that's sort of like the, the impetus of, of the question for me. So let's draw a distinction between being Vietnamese in the diaspora and being Vietnamese in Vietnam. You know, if we were Vietnamese in Vietnam, we would be the majority, right? So Vietnam right. is a diverse country. There's lots of different ethnicities and so on. But I'm getting Vietnamese. I think you are too, right? Yes. Which means that in Vietnam, we would be the equivalent of the white people in the United States. <laughs> we would be the majority, right? And so therefore, we wouldn't generally go around asking the question, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? Because we're like, we're Vietnamese. We're the ones in charge. We never would question it, just like white people here, until times of crisis wouldn't question their whiteness or their Americanness or anything like that. So it's only that we're in, it's only during times of crisis of national identity, whether it's in Vietnam or in the United States, that the people of the majority start to ask this question, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? What does it mean to be American? But we in the diaspora are in the minority, all right? So therefore, when we're in the minority, the question that you put, the issue, the solution that you pose, we're all human, is a solution to a problem. And the problem is that when you're in the minority, the majority sees you oftentimes as not being human or not, not, not being fully human. And when you are of the majority, you assume your humanity, you take it for granted. And therefore, your identity is not in crisis, which means that you could, when, you, when we say that we're Vietnamese as a majority, we, we implicitly understand that being a Vietnamese of a majority can be incredibly diverse. You could be a saint or you could be a serial killer, but it doesn't reflect on being Vietnamese. That's just a part of your humanity. In the diaspora as a minority, being a saint or a serial killer takes on huge weight because you represent the diaspora to the rest of the country, right? To the majority. And so that is what, that is the crisis. And I really want us to reject the crisis, okay? Because if we go around thinking, my humanity is in question, we're already admitting to our inferiority from the majority, mm -hmm. right? So we, uh, the first step we have to take in answering your, your first question is we have to assert 
that we should not be in crisis because of our identity. We should not feel that our humanity is in question. The most defiant thing we can do is to assert our humanity. But, and this is very important, by asserting our humanity, we shouldn't idealize being Vietnamese. And I think for a lot of Vietnamese people in the diaspora or any so-called minority, that is what they do. They say, we're human, and then they idealize it, which is the answer to your question. When you say, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? A lot of Vietnamese people or other people of so-called minority backgrounds would go into some kind of idealized response. You know, I love my parents. I love, uh, you know, all, the, all this kind of stuff. Well, all that is true. But, you know, there are a lot of Vietnamese people who do, who do bad things as well, right? And we should embrace that. We shouldn't reject them and say, those people are not authentically Vietnamese or they don't represent us or anything. Because in Vietnam, we wouldn't raise that issue. We're saints and we're serial killers and we're everything in between. And if we're in the diaspora, we should embrace the broad spectrum of our humanity, not just the idealized part, the good part, but everything, the good, the bad, everything in between. And I think for a lot of uh, people of the diasporas, it's hard to do that because they know that their humanity is under question. So then they just want to assert their humanity. And I'm just very, I just think it's so crucial for us to acknowledge that our humanity is very complex. And if we can embrace that, then we can embrace everything about us. To jump and to scale that fence of believing is a very difficult thing for somebody like me, right? That that time period, and I I talk to a lot of my friends that are in, you know from forty to about fifty five who grew up in the seventies in the United States, seventies, eighties, nineties. The emasculation we were dehumanized in media. We were all of these things that happened and it, and listening to you, and I understand what you're saying, but to go through American society and to believe it and to have the courage and the intestinal fortitude to say, you know what, I'm going to stand up and be part of, you know, and, and not be, I'm not othered myself is a difficult thing. It, it is difficult. I think I've struggled with it too. Um, but I grew up, again, in this Vietnamese refugee community and looking around, I thought we're actually very complex. And if we say we're Vietnamese, what does that mean? It, again, it's not just about singing the national anthem or speaking the language or knowing our customs and all that kind of good stuff. But I grew up in a community where I looked down and I saw, hey, there are gangsters here. There are welfare cheats. There's abusive husbands. There's fathers who've left their families. All this kind of stuff. And Vietnamese people are embarrassed about it. Uh, we shouldn't talk about this kind of stuff outside of the community because we don't want to draw attention to the bad things that we're doing. But the bad things that the Vietnamese people did that I knew growing up, they're no different than the, the bad things that the rest of the United States was doing. You know, like all the stuff that I just mentioned, a lot of other Americans were doing it too. So why cover it up? Why pretend it doesn't exist? And in fact, so that's why I insist that being able to talk about us and our full complexity of the good and the bad is so crucial. And I know what you're saying, the defensiveness, saying, oh, look, look at, we're just, if we're just talking about Vietnamese men, you know, oh, the emasculation, the fact that we've been uh, de dehumanized through racist caricatures and stereotypes and movies and whatnot, and how that might impact how we personally behave with other people. I understand the emotional and psychological damages that that does, you know, and maybe I was lucky, you know, maybe I grew up not feeling that quite as intensely as other uh, Vietnamese uh, men or Vietnamese American men did. I didn't um, get that. Could you try again? Was that my phone or your phone? I'm not sure. Oh, it's your phone. <laughs> all, all of a sudden, 
series. Siri, Siri doesn't understand that conversation. That was a that was a Karen. Oh my god! <laughs> We're gonna have to keep this in the episode. Uh, <laughs> that's so funny. This has never happened before. Um, you know, I, I was talking to um, my Elliot um, uh, last week, and you know, she said when she got here at nineteen, went to Georgetown, she missed that bullet. The, the, you don't it, it, my brother doesn't have it either i think the problem is when you're born here something psychological is like okay well i'm american and you grow up and you're like wait a minute that's not how america accepts you or receives you so there is a you know for you or for 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 tom being born in vietnam it's like well fuck it i'm i'm vietnamese i was born in vietnam you know so there's there's this weird um dynamic that happens uh, to somebody who like this early, you know, in 1975 in November for me being born in Fort Indian town gap, you know, it's where you're, you're from where you stayed. And wait, 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 when we, November, you said in Fort Indian no, town, November wow. 28, 1975, Fort Indian, I was born uh, right outside in Chambersburg. Okay. Okay. I, I'm going to go uh, back to Harrisburg actually yes. in a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. I, I saw your post on that for the first time. Yeah. 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 I, I went back when I was, yeah. say again. I could have been there watching your birth, you know, four year old. I went back at 21 um, to thank the sponsors because my parents just took off and never said thank you or anything. And when I was my last year in the Marine Corps, I still had the haircut. I was still fit and went back in my dress blues to to thank the the family um, that that uh, that sponsored us in. See, my impression of you is that you're a patriot, you know, because then I must have seen you like a year or two after that, or a couple of years after that, maybe, yeah. you know, and I thought, oh, here's this very fit, you know, macho fellow and, you know, still wearing, as a matter of fact, I saw you at a party once wearing your Marine jacket, I believe. And um, I thought, wow, we're very, very different, you know, because I never felt the need to prove, I don't know, I don't know what your motivation was, but, you know, my- To prove, for sure. It was to- or or whatever definitely to prove it and and i think the shame of 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 not being white at, for me was heavy it was heavier than tom's by by a lot and i i think that's what drives this uh work that i do I, it's I, it's a never ending source for me because i just need to prove that you know uh yavang were worth something in the world and it's a funny question because when i ask people in Vietnam, what does it mean to be Vietnamese? They look at me like I'm from another planet. They're, what do you mean? What do you mean? What does it mean to be Vietnamese? And in, in my naive mind all the time, I'm thinking, well, aren't we Vietnamese on, uh, you know, um, against the Koreans and, you know, not against, but put up against the Koreans or some other dominant culture like Vietnam, I mean, the U.S. And they all have this blank stare. And it's wonderful because they explain it to me. Well, when I go back to Vietnam, oftentimes how I know I'm Vietnamese is when people grab me and say, you're Vietnamese, you know, like, so, I mean, this happens actually more in North Vietnam than the Southern part, because I think in the Southern part, they're used to Viet Gu who come back. But my experience in Hanoi and places like that in the North, uh, at least when I went back, um, the last time I was back was in 2014, you know, they'll, they'll, when they discover I'm Vietnamese, be like, it's like a lot of like, wow, welcome back. You know, we're all Vietnamese together. And so... There is that sense when they have it, but, you know, but for you, maybe it's, maybe it's different. Um, but, and I think also because when I go back, 
in the North, they don't think I'm Vietnamese initially when they see me. When they hear me speak Vietnamese, they're like, oh my God, your Vietnamese is so good for a mm. Korean. And then when I say, oh, I'm actually Vietnamese, like, oh, welcome back, brother. You know, and so that's actually very heartwarming in, in some ways to be uh, welcomed back. And in, 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 in Vietnamese America, I've often encountered that. You know, I think one of the great things about being Vietnamese American when I was growing up and in my 20s and so on is the fact that there was a lot of hospitality when when people welcome you into their house or their cultural circle of whatever kind. It was very much about being Vietnamese. Like here we are together in this household for whatever reason, welcome into my house. Let's eat some Vietnamese food. Let's speak some Vietnamese and all that kind of thing. That's how I knew I was Vietnamese, right? Establishing these, these cultural bonds in the context of being a minority in the United States or in Vietnam in the context of being a, a, an overseas Vietnamese being welcomed back to the origins, right? Very heartwarming, but I'm very distrustful of it because all of that stuff being wrapped up in the bosom of your culture always has an inverse, which is we're going to kill you if you're <laughs> invading us or you're an outsider or whatever, you know, so you can't take one without the other so far as I have, as so far as I've experienced. And maybe in some ideal, ideal world, we could have the Let's all be Vietnamese together and not kill other people. But so far, I haven't seen that in history. No, I, I think, yeah, it comes with so much drama and so much uh, so much baggage that we we experience as any culture, I, I guess. It's, you know, the ins and the outs of it all. Yeah, we're not unique. Every, every culture does it. You know, Americans very much do that as well. I want to go a little bit a less heavier topic, which is drinking. Um, I got into, uh, you know, mindless drinking when I was in, you know, in the, in the Marine Corps and a teenager, mindless drinking. But in the last maybe decade, uh, I've slowed down a little bit and um, it's maybe the economy and the efficiency of, well, I can only drink a little bit because of uh, health reasons. So if I'm going to drink, I'm going to make it count. So because of I'm going to drink and I'm not going to stop it and I want to make it count, I, bec I become a little bit more mindful of what I'm drinking. I know that the culture of alcohol is matters. And if I was to ask you, um, you know, your, your son, Ellison, if, if he was of age, what kind of program, how would you get him started along uh, the, the, the alcohol program that, that you know in your life? When I was growing up, my father would have one beer every night, a can of Coors, so I was always very kind of curious about it. You know, he's a hardworking man. This is like his one reward in the day. So one night when parents went out for whatever reason, and I can't remember how old I was, maybe I was 12 or something, 12, 14. I thought, oh, I'm going to drink that Coors can because he's not going to miss it from the fridge, right? So I opened the can. I took a sip. I was like, oh, this is disgusting. And I threw it away. I wouldn't drink again until college. And uh, my, my, I think my literally my first night in college, my friends and I got together and we drank a lot of Bartles and James wine coolers. I mean, this generation has no idea what that is. Bartles and James was a big thing in the late 80s. And as I drank so much, then we went to the movie theater across the street and then I threw up. Okay. So that is not a good thing to do. Right. Um, and so I think with my own children, I have a very different approach. Like my house is full of liquor. My, my kids see me drinking, my eight year old son, two year old daughter. And my, you know, I was like making a martini right before this event, as a matter of fact, when I was getting all the ingredients together, my daughter, two years, like two years old was like, what are you doing, daddy? 
I was like, I'm making a drink, I'm making a martini. And Ellison knows that I drink scotch. He says, you know, he knows the word scotch and he sees it all. And I think that it's important to set an example for your kids, you know, like don't treat alcohol like it's something terrible or forbidden or whatever. And then when they're of the right age, you know, you can say, hey, you know, if you want a little bit of wine or whatever, do that. And I think that's a much healthier attitude than the Catholic upbringing that I had, which was all or nothing, right? Don't do anything forbidden, whether it's sex or alcohol or dirty words or whatever. And so I think when Ellison is curious, we'll talk about it. And I'm perfectly happy with giving him a little bit. And again, the lesson is moderation because alcohol can be a beautiful thing. Alcohol can be a terrible thing too, obviously. So, Mm. you know, I I would do my part and say, don't drink too much, right? Don't drink and drive. But a little bit of alcohol or even a lot, actually, I, I drink quite a bit, can be good. And again, my advice here is drink the best alcohol you can possibly afford because it does get better the more you spend up until a certain point. Now, now, where would you start? Wine, wine. Yeah, because I think wine is very civilized. Wine is very civilized and you can drink it in small quantities and and you can get a taste for it and then beer and then a little bit later, some more of the hard liquors and everything. But I I look forward to establishing a relationship with my children where we can have a nice drink together and I can make them a cocktail and all of that. And again, it's, it's a matter, I think the Vietnamese attitude towards things is much more about hierarchy. Like here are things that the adults can do and here are things that the kids can do, but there's nothing in between. Or here are things that men can do and women can do and there's nothing in between. And I've never liked that. You know, I actually like hanging out more with women than I do with men, for example. So when I visit a Vietnamese household and the men are in one room drinking and the women are in the back washing the dishes or making the rice or whatever, I feel this is weird. I'd rather be hanging out with the women. And so likewise, I think, you know, again, as, as a Vietnamese American father, even the term Vietnamese American, it's about breaking down the boundaries, right? And so I hope I have a healthy relationship with my children, which apparently a lot of Vietnamese people do not have with their parents because, no. you know, we're not supposed to talk to them or have friendships with our parents or things like that. But there's there's real barriers. There's no, you know, uh, the, the, the fact that they, a lot of them cannot say sorry. That's, it's a big thing. You know, my my mom, you know, she'll, she'll say to me, you know, I feel bad, but you know, it's just not in my culture to say sorry to you. I'm so, you know, just, and she openly admits it. And like, mom, I, and I tell her, mom, I'm really hurt by what you're saying. And she says, just don't be so complicated. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I actually don't expect my, my, my mother's passed away, but I don't expect my dad to ever say I'm sorry uh, to me, you know, because it's, it's all like, you know, the balance sheet, like my parents sacrificed yeah. enormously, like all our, parents did and so maybe along the way they did things that were damaging to me in one way or another because they're under stress and all that and there's a cultural differences and all that but you know in the larger scheme of things it's not important to for me personally to hear my parents say i'm sorry but you know what my brother and i my older brother and i have done over the last 10 15 or 20 years is to work on our parents at a different emotional level which is to say to our parents i love you if that's what I want to hear, I don't want to hear my parents say, I'm sorry. I oh. want to hear my parents say, I love you. And in fact, I don't, I don't remember whether when I was growing up, my parents ever said, I love you. But I do know that they express their love in the right. different ways that Vietnamese parents do by taking care of us and everything. But in the last 10 or 15 years, my father, in fact, has, and my mother too, in fact, have said, I love you in Vietnamese and in English to me and to uh, my children. And I think that's the important part, you know, like... Um, that we can reach some kind of emotional rapprochement with our parents. How did you arrive at that point with them? Wearing them down. Like I would just say it, you know, you know, I love you. And 
And then I think, um, you know, especially when they started having grandkids, then it, then, then it became different uh, for them. And my, my, my brother had kids first, you know, but you could clearly see that they were softening up by that point. But jumping off to say, I love you to my mom, my father's passed away, but jumping off to say, I love you to my mom is like, I, I think it's for me even scarier than jumping into a, like a frigid ice cold pool. It, yeah, it's hard when you don't have that yeah. type of relationship or the words It can be literally very difficult to get it out. But again, you know, you, someone has to be the first one, right? And maybe when we're kids, we expect, when, when we're Americanized or American, we expect our parents to be the ones to say that because that's supposedly what American culture does. But, uh, you know, someone's got to take the lead. So you have to be the one, if she won't do it, to, to say it in Vietnamese or in English and just put up. Yeah. How old were you when you did it? Well, I was an adult, you know, like I think uh, I grew up in a very reticent household where we didn't talk a lot to begin with. And we certainly didn't talk about our emotions or anything like that. Um, Vietnamese, my parents, I think like other Vietnamese parents probably expressed their affection through number one, through their sacrifices and all the work that they did and making sure we were taken care of, but also through their pride, whatever their children were accomplishing. Um, so I knew my parents loved me. And so maybe I had that kind of security that maybe other Vietnamese kids didn't have. I, I, you know, my parents expressed their love in different ways. Um, but I think at a certain point, as I got older and I started to realize that I was emotionally damaged in various ways, partly due to being Vietnamese, but partly just to my own weird self, I realized, you know, like I, I had a, I had a partner, a wife, and then I had kids. I like, I got to work on my emotions and my capacity to express love and affection just because I didn't receive it in a certain way is no excuse for me, therefore not to give of those feelings, you know? So someone has to change the cycle, right? So we just can't wait for other people to do it. And so I I think that I have grown emotionally over the decades in a a good way for the most part, right? And I think that that is a very positive thing. We just, just because we've all been damaged in one way or another by history, by circumstance, by our own individual weirdness, doesn't mean we have to replicate that. Like we, if we're conscious of our limitations, we can actually overcome them. I have to go further with this question because I, I, I'm imagining myself saying, I love you or Kung Tuma, but I, I can't do it. I, I can't even imagine it. For you, did it take time or did it just blurt out at, you know, it just came naturally one day or you were at a graduation, they were at your graduation and you just felt like they loved you so much that it was like the right time or, or did you plan it? That's a good question. I don't remember actually when the first time I said it was, you know, but uh, I, I, and I know, I remember it was, at least it was awkward, right? Because the first time you say it, or first time I said it to my parents, they were like, hmm, okay. They didn't say it back. Right? Yeah. Like, okay. No, you just keep it up, right? Another thing is that, at least in my family, you know, the parents, uh, they age, they get vulnerable, they get physically weak, uh, psychologically weak, all these kinds of things. And unfortunately, that's when you know that time is running out. So there's that pressure too. If you don't say it now or sometime soon, are you going to have the chance to say it? Or, you know, and so, you know, when you're little, your parents are everything to you and they're these giants and everything. Then you get older and the situation's reverse. This is very human. And they become the weak ones and you have to take care of them in some way or another. And then, so then you have to be the responsible one. You have to be the one to, to, mm. to take 
action, right? And um, that's in, that's the stage of life that I'm in now. I have to like both take care of little kids, and I have to think about my parents or my dad, and uh, the state of mind that he's in. And so I have to, in both directions, I have to be the one who's proactive emotionally. Thank you for sharing that with me because uh, it, it is a you know it's 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 not even hard. It's just impossible almost. Yeah, and. I'm just looking for like that crack in the door uh, through whatever you're going to, whatever you're not instructing me to, 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 to do, but I just need a little, uh, not a, a little, I need a big push. I mean, I think I'm speaking for a lot of men, my, or women, my, in my generation, we just know that our parents love us, but we just, but saying it and having the words, because my mom says it to my, my kids. And I sometimes really wish that we had that, her and I had that. And uh, so thank you, I, I appreciate it. Well, I think that it's also very common um, to express affection uh, laterally, I guess. So, you know, she's saying, I love you to your, your yeah. kids, but she knows you're listening, right? So <laughs> that's how she's communicating, you know? And I think that's very, very normal, actually. So she has, in fact, actually given you an opening because she said, I mean, she's actually said the words, just not to you. So, I mean, my recommendation would be, hey, just ambush her. <laughs> you're about to leave, kids are in the car, you buckle them in, mom's waving goodbye, just say, gone to Matt and get in the car and get out of there. You know, you don't have to wait for the reaction, just get out. And then keep doing it, keep doing it. She'll be shocked. She's like, oh my God, what did he say? But, you know, keep doing it. And, 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 and sooner or later, sooner or later, I think the, the walls will come down a little bit. You know, that that says a lot about who you are. Um, keep doing it. Keep doing it. And the walls will come down. You know, when you first got to USC and to, to today, there's been a lot of discipline that you've probably had to struggle with. And even going back to a lot of the posts that you you talk about, you know, sleeping in class at Berkeley. How did you find the energy or the the mindset to stay so consistent to produce all this work? I grew up watching my parents. My parents, uh, I, I greatly admire my parents because even though I disagree with them in many ways, politically, culturally, religiously, they were very, um, they were not hypocrites, you know? So they raised me very Catholic and they, they talked about the values of hard work, but they did all that too, you know? Mm. They, so they had, a, they were very good role models in the sense that they, they walked the walk and talked the talk. And so I grew up watching them suffer and sacrifice, uh, working 12 to 14 hour days in their grocery store for myself, my brother, all the relatives in Vietnam that they were sending money back home to. And so I admired my parents for that. And then I felt um, that I myself was kind of a failure when I was growing up because I was not very authentically Vietnamese. And, and then I was a sort of mediocre high school student. My brother went to Harvard and then I went to like my last choice university. And so when I got to my last choice university, which I shall not name because it's actually a pretty decent university, but in my mind, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Berkeley or whatever. And so I thought I'm a failure. And that was actually uh, my wake up call when I was uh, 17 and a college freshman, I realized I'm a failure. You know, look at what my brother did. Look what my parents did. And here I am bringing shame to the family. <laughs> And so I, that was the turning point in my life where I thought I have to work my butt off basically to leave this place, this last choice university, to go to my first choice university, which was UC Berkeley. And I did it. And I did it by working really hard and getting good grades and all of that. And 
basically, I've never stopped since then. So even in the class, even the in, even in the moment at, that you talked about, where I was falling asleep in class at Berkeley, it wasn't because I wasn't working hard. In fact, it was because I was working hard. Like oh, I was wow. a student, I was an activist, I was doing all kinds of stuff, and I wasn't getting enough sleep, so I fell asleep in in class. But I was also dealing with personal and emotional things. But the point is, is that that was where the early uh, the sort of the drive to to work hard came in from my parents and from my own sense of being a failure. And then, you know, to, to succeed in academia, as, as is probably true for other professions, you really can't be lazy. you got to work all the time, you know. And when I met you, I was probably in my mid to late 20s because I just started at USC. And I was like, oh, I have to really prove myself here because I'm so young and I need to, um, there's, there's no way for me to succeed as a university professor as an English professor who is Asian American and Vietnamese refugee without working my butt off, you know, because I just implicitly assumed that people would be judging me in, in, in every possible situation. And there was plenty of evidence that that was happening. So that was where the drive came in. And that was just to survive, but also to become a writer, I, I was very stubborn. Uh, again, I didn't want to be a failure. And I saw my parents working hard doing their thing. I didn't want to be a grocery store owner, but I wanted to be a writer and a scholar, which meant I had to do the equivalent amount of work, the equivalent amount of suffering in that area. And finally, for me as a Vietnamese refugee to become an English professor and a writer was an act of defiance mm. because we're not expected to do this, right? Like we're expected to be the doctors and the nurses and pharmacists. Vietnamese people expect it, Americans expect it. And I felt that. For me to claim my place in the United States, the way that I was going to do it was through mastering English and the language and, and, and the storytelling. This was where I was going to carry out my struggle. So for a lot of Vietnamese Americans and refugees, their struggle was to be, you know, we're going to become doctors and lawyers, et cetera, and become respectable citizens. And that, there's nothing wrong with that, right? But I've always felt that that's not the only thing that we have to do. In fact, if that's all we did was become respectable citizens, we would lose in the long run because to be an American is to own the story of this country. It's about storytelling in addition to all the, the career things and whatnot. We would never become Americans if all we did was just get a good job and raise kids. We would have to contest this country at the level of the story. And I think that maybe that was part of what you were doing. Like, you know, I'm gonna become a Marine, prove my Americanness that way. I was trying to prove my Americanness through the canon of the literature and the language so that no one could ever say to me, you're not really an American. Because I could always say back, my English is better than yours. Mm -hmm. You know, so that was yeah. that was where the determination came in. Yeah, and I, I live, I live uh, that way Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at bet mgm 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. By proving or trying to prove that my Americanness uh, through the Marines and, 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 you know, trying to, you know, read a lot of books and English, but also I have that problem in my Vietnamese identity. I have to learn, I had to learn singing uh, Vietnamese. I had to learn uh, words in Vietnamese because I have this dying, this like this need to prove that I'm Vietnamese as well. And it doesn't, these two things don't ever go away for me. It's, always popping up, you know, the sense I'm just an insecure guy. I mean, that's let's face it, right? Like uh, I'm insecure that I'm not American enough and I'm insecure that I'm not Vietnamese enough. And these two things are constantly in battle uh, with each other in in my mind. Um, And as you're giving me this, um, you know, we got to rethink this Vietnamese question in the beginning. I'm sitting here going, how would I even do that? You know, for me, I think growing up, I felt implicitly that uh, I had to make a choice. I don't think I ever articulated it to myself, but I, I think I understood it. I could be doing what you did, which is to feel torn, right? And then, and then I, w- I was afraid. I think implicitly that if I was torn in that way between being Vietnamese and being American, I would be equally bad at both. <laughs> and I know people like this. Like their their English is not great, and their Vietnamese is not great. That sucks. <laughs> I thought you got to, you know, so I, I, it's not a good thing to feel like you have to choose, right? Yeah. One or the other, but I feel like I did choose. I, I, I was like, I'm going to be really good at English. I know I can do this, but to be really good at Vietnamese was too hard for me. There was all this cultural baggage around being Vietnamese and learning the language and so on. And so I felt I'm going to make my commitment to English, but I never forgot being Vietnamese. And so I would also do what you said, which is you know, I'll periodically feel guilty and I'll take Vietnamese classes and all that kind of thing. I went back to Vietnam as an adult, for example as a 30, 32, 33 year old. And I enrolled in Vietnam National University. I did seven months of academic Vietnamese wow. language training there, you know? So I, I never forgot being Vietnamese or the mm-hmm. connection and so on, but I, I think I was strategic. Like, you know, like if I, can't, I can't dilute myself. I'm gonna take care, make sure I become really good at one thing and then I can worry about the Vietnamese part of things. And I think that's really, I mean, the advice I give to younger people is, you know, think of your, your of your life as a trajectory. It's not like you don't have to do everything in five years or 10 years. Do what you can in five or 10 years, whatever is important. But you have your whole life to think of yourself as a whole person. And for me, as a whole person, it means like I have my whole life to learn Vietnamese and reconcile myself with all the conflicts that we've just been discussing because it is very complicated. You know, for me personally, for example, like I feel rejected, uh, not just by Vietnamese Americans, but also by Vietnam because. You know, some of my work is translated into Vietnamese, but the sympathizer is not translated into Vietnamese. The sympathizer TV series that we're doing, we're not, we just, we got, we learned of this a few weeks ago. Vietnam is not going to allow us to shoot in, in Vietnam, you know? And so how can I be Vietnamese if my own country, that country, that culture is rejecting something so important uh, to me, which is my, you know, my novel, you know, which I, I feel like I wrote this novel for Vietnamese Americans, but also for Vietnamese people in Vietnam as well. And no, the Vietnamese, at least one, the official Vietnamese government is not having it. So the, 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 it's a very complicated relationship that I have. And I think maybe you do too with Vietnamese American culture, but also with Vietnam itself, Vietnam, the country, which is not the communist party, 
but also the Communist Party and the government and all that it right. represents. And that is why this conversation about the narrative of the April 30, 1975 day for me is so complicated. I'm exhausted and I'm year after year, I'm exhausted. I'm just so tired of talking about it and thinking about it and hearing about it. And I, you know, I don't want to be accused of being lazy, but at this point it's, it's getting to that point where I just, uh, I don't want to hear about it anymore, but then, you know, it's, it comes around every year and it's like, uh, you know, in Vietnam, it's celebrated and here we're, you know, it's a day of mourning and, you know, uh, and that's why I reached out to you. Um, I, I've been, you know, thinking about reaching out to you for all these months, you know, since I started the podcast, but I've never really felt like I had the scope of, of all of these things. There's so much that you and I share and can talk about, but this one particular thing is something that uh, gnawed at me for, for, for weeks and, and, you know, just the, the anxiety of this day that comes up um, and talking about it is something that I wanted to ask you about. Um, how, do we, how do we frame this? What, what, how do we look at this complicated um, day? Well, I think a lot of things are mixed up in this. One is um, the nationalism of what this day represents. So for Americans, it represents defeat. For the South Vietnamese and their descendants, it represents defeat and loss of a country. For the victorious Vietnamese, it represents victory and independence and liberation, but it's all tied to nationalist identity, right? The United States, uh, Republic of Vietnam, the North Vietnam. And my conclusion to all of that is I reject nationalism. And that's one of the reasons why I reject Black April because the, the very connotations are deeply nationalist. Um, I, don't, I don't think that the kind of nationalism that drives us to war is a good thing. And it doesn't matter whether it's our nationalism or somebody else's nationalism. All the nationalisms need to defeat and to conquer and to have an other and so on and so forth. And that's why I don't feel a huge affiliation politically with the South Vietnamese and their efforts to have a Black April. I feel an affinity culturally and personally, but by which I mean, look, I have a lot of affection for Vietnamese refugees and South Vietnamese Americans and South Vietnam. And I, have, I think I have a pretty deep emotional understanding of all of the things that we've been through and our parents and our grandparents and all the resentment and anger and bitterness and love and all that kind of stuff, right? I, I, I get it, I think, but I reject the politics of the nationalism. And that makes me different than a lot of other Vietnamese refugees and Vietnamese Americans for whom the emotions and the loss and the culture can't be separated from the nationalism. And so I just cannot be a part of the Black April narrative and the celebration because I don't believe in a world of good and evil, of communism and anti-communism, where we're the good ones and they're the bad ones. Because I think history is too complex for that. Because I can look at the Vietnamese communists and I can acknowledge, yes, some of them did terrible things. Some of them still do terrible things. But all the things that we as Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese refugees, Southern Vietnamese people value in terms of loyalty and honor and patriotism and sacrifice, all these things, that was true for the North Vietnamese and mm -hmm. the Southern Vietnamese who were part of the National Liberation Front. They, they didn't do it because they were evil. They, they, they fought because they loved their country 
and they love their people just as we think we, we ourselves do. So how do you reconcile these two conflicting visions? You can't, you cannot. And so what is it that we are struggling and fighting for? I think for nationalists, the answer is the nation. And like, we want to have our nation, we want to validate our heroes, and we want to demonize those enemies and so on. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in a sort of a utopian future where we don't, we're not killing each other over national identity. Where in the utopian future, being Vietnamese or uh, communist Vietnamese or anti-communist Vietnamese or American is no more important than whether we root for the Dodgers or the, the Giants or whatever, you know, like, like, are we from Los Angeles or Sacramento? Who cares? You know, that's a nice rivalry, but we're not going to kill each other over it. <laughs> kill each other over nationalism. Why? It's, it's absurd. And so that, that's what I think is wrong with Black April. It's not the love, the culture, the affection that we have for each other as Vietnamese exiles or refugees. What's wrong is that we use those feelings to hate and to demonize other people. And if we don't like being demonized by the Vietnamese communists, why, why do you think it's good for us to demonize the Vietnamese communists? It's the same thing. But it's very hard for people to overcome these, these emotions and this nationalism, especially if it's tied to, for us as a, as a younger generation, tied to whatever obligations we think we feel for our parents and our grandparents and what they've been through. That explanation, to me, takes a lot of courage to, to say. And I think that you've probably been thinking that for many years, many days, many, many nights to include it into the work that you do. Uh, where do we as um, the younger generation, like myself or younger kids, find courage or the confidence to say, this is how it is and not be afraid of retribution? Like right now, I'm literally, I'm thinking about the retribution that I might get as a result of having this conversation. That's how imprinted and ingrained within uh, our society, Vietnamese American society, we should be able to talk about this. And then, you know, I talked to, to uh, Lely Hayslip and, and Chikwe Mai about, uh, about my mom's generation. She always says, well, they have to die off. Well, that's, that's fucking sad. Um, but if they don't die off, I'm, I'm living in fear because there's a lot of, there's just a lot of, uh, energy, bad energy that, that gets directed at, at, at people like, you know, like us that are, are, are wanting to, to have a different narrative. And where do you find the courage? Where did, where did you find the courage? When I was growing up, I felt like a coward, uh, because my parents wanted one thing. I wanted another thing. And I could never stand up to my parents, you know, because uh, I you know, love them, respect them. I had to like, I, I, I couldn't live without them. You know, they were paying the rent. You know, I was in their house, right? What was I going to do? And so that always made me feel really terrible because I felt like I was a coward. Like I, I would always like sub submit myself to my parents. Um, you know, I grew up in a household where, you know, my parents were under a lot of stress. And I think once my father beat me very badly when I was a little kid. And I was terrified of him after that. He was not a terrible man. No, no, he's a very good man. Yeah. But you put someone under enough pressure, you know, and they can break and they can be violent. And so after that one time, whenever there was a possibility that he might beat me again, I would always run into the bathroom, lock the door and wait until he calmed down. And he would always come down and then beg me to come out. But it, it always left me the impression that I'm a coward. I, would, I could never stand up for myself and what I believed in. And then, so I think, 
when I went to college, I, I wanted to become a writer and I wanted, and the writers that I admired were writers who were really, you know, they were great artists, but they were also really committed publicly to their political, intellectual, artistic beliefs. And they took huge risks. That was the kind of writer I wanted to believe, wanted to be. And so I've always fluctuated between like keeping myself silent in the face of my parents and swearing that I would never be silent in any other context, right? And so I totally get it when people feel afraid, because I have, and I do feel afraid. Um, but I, I, I only feel like I owe that fear to my parents. Like I owe them something. But I don't owe the Vietnamese community anything. I don't owe the United States anything either. Or if I do owe them, it's a very complex debt. Like with the United States, I've said it everywhere, including at West Point. I've said, you know, I, 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 I do feel gratitude to the United States, but I wouldn't feel the gratitude for being rescued by the United States if we hadn't been bombed by the United States in the first place. And if I say that in, in a Vietnamese context, the Vietnamese people freak out, you know, how dare you be a communist and all that kind of thing. Well, I don't owe you anything. Just because we're Vietnamese, you know, we love pho, okay, cool. But, but beyond that, I don't owe you my silence or my respect or anything like that. And I think about Vietnam, like, it's like, Vietnamese, we fought a civil war together, we killed each other. Where was our reticence then? Where was our filial piety then? So it's, I think it's like, it's very complicated how we feel this debt. And a lot of it is, again, due to being a so-called minority, feeling obligation to our refugee parents, blah, blah, blah. But in Vietnam, we were killing each other. We had no problem standing up for our beliefs against each other. And so I, 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 I do feel fear. Every time I give a speech to an audience, I feel fear. You know, like, what are they going to, what are they going to, how are they going to respond? Because everybody has a reason to hate me in different ways. Like I get hate mail from Americans. I know that a lot of Vietnamese Americans refuse to read my work because they think I'm a communist. And then my work is not allowed to be published in Vietnam because they think I'm an anti-communist and all of that. But I think that for me as a writer, my, my identity is first and foremost as a writer. And you can't be a writer if you're not committed to the truth, you know? And so why bother being a writer if you can't be true? That's, a, that's I think, my one uh, strength is to believe that I will always say what I believe in. And uh, I will say it to you personally, you know, I'm a very honest person, frank, a frank person. And I would say it in my public speeches and in my art and all that. And I, I, I don't think I'm brave. I don't think I'm brave because I think there are a lot of people who suffer worse consequences than I do. But I am always struck by how oftentimes people remark to me, oh, you're so frank and you're so honest, as if they're not used to pe pe people being frank and honest. Like, what's going on? Are we, are people habitually not frank and honest that if I say certain things? Yeah, yeah, I think you're, yeah, because we all have things to lose. We all have careers that we were worried and were guarded, where we all have family positions, you know, with our cousins and our uncles and aunts, and we don't want to be ostracized at parties. That's what I lived through um, for many, many years. Yeah, we have a lot to lose. And maybe I was different, maybe because I was willing to walk away from the Vietnamese community. Yeah. And maybe because, you know, like I, I was already, you know, rebellious against the Vietnamese community as a kid because of like, I don't believe in Vietnamese Catholicism. I don't even like a lot of Vietnamese people. I, I could see some of the limitations and I was willing to walk away. Mm -hmm. So that, I think that's very important. If you, you have to be willing to walk away. And if you're not willing to walk away, then of course you have a lot to lose, right? So I think each of us has to define when are you willing to walk away from what it is that gives you comfort, you know? And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I never could do it with my family. 
you know, I think I was insulated because my parents, you know, I mean, they could speak enough English to do the work they needed to do, but they weren't going to read my stuff in English, you know? And then so I was insulated from them because of that. Uh, but if you're not insulated, then I understand how difficult it can be. So I don't hold judgments against people who feel deeply afraid of, of losing something, losing a community or a family that's very important to them. Processing this. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I've always been inside the community and I've always valued the relationships of two, three decades of people in the community. And oftentimes it's uh, voices that are, you know, on, on all sides. My father, thank God he had this way of looking and he's passed away. So I can, I can say it without any fear of anybody. There's any rep- retribution against him he, at 17. He, uh, jumped in at the bottom of a French merchant ship, a big uh, merchant vessel uh, on the, on the river or on the uh, ocean. And he would, he tried to slip and and escape when he was 17. Uh, And he always would tell me, he said, because the idea of the flag and, and being a certain nationality was a problem. And I, and I say this a lot in my podcast. He always said to me, there's only one language. It's the language of intellectuals. And everything else, just every other language just transports ideas. And he said, if you get married and if you get too clo- closed in to this idea of a language or your language being the best, because, you know, we would sit at the dinner table with his friends and they would always debate if Vietnamese was the best language because it, and my father would always say, no, um, it, that's not that doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. And he said it to me when I was, as, as we were growing up, but I always feared what people would say when I said that in the family, because they're staunch Vietnamese or, and here I am doing this work called the Vietnamese. So I, I question and examine this all the time. Um, and maybe as I get to talk about it more and more and more and more with people like you, uh, the stigma eventually goes away and the Vietnamese podcast would just be, us talking about the work that we do and it's not, you know, so not so, so heavy on the shame or the scars that I'm feeling. Right. Cause a lot of the, the, the topics that I'm talking about right now, I still feel very cringy when I look, listen back to some of the guests it's because it's, I'm working out my shame and I'm working out my, my guilt and my identity still. Uh, and I think it's going to take some time to kind of uh, get to the point where I have the courage um, to really, you know, uh, isolate myself and say, you know, I, I really have to come out of the shell and 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 really identify with with things that are um, just that 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 mean um, identify with things that are just the truth for myself. Well, I think part of what's related to this is that it's very human to want to be inside, inside your family, inside your community, inside your nation, because when you're inside, you're a part of a group. And you have all that affirmation, right? But then if you don't fit into the consensus, you fear being cast out. And so a lot of people are afraid of that. That's why, and is this true regardless of nationality or culture or or, or ideology? You know, I think it's just generally true. For me, I grew up feeling like I was already outside. I was outside of the United States because I I was American, but I, I knew I was different. I was outside of the Vietnamese American community because I knew I was Vietnamese, but I was also different. And that's not a comfortable situation to be in. 
it's great for being a writer because I think, you know, a, as a writer, you should be built inside and outside. You should be inside in the sense that you can be empathetic to whoever you're writing mm. about. And I'm empathetic to the Vietnamese. I'm empathetic to the Americans. But you should be outside because you have to be outside in order to see the foolishness and the hypocrisy and the absurdities that go with every in-group. I'm not making a judgment on Vietnamese people or Americans. I'm saying it's true for every group of people. And so I think I've, I grew up feeling uh, comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so, but I think for a lot of people, they just want to be comfortable with being comfortable. And so it's hard to be brave when you're in that situation. Yeah. But having these conversations do open up ideas and they do open up, um, it, it does open up uh, a new avenue of thinking for me. And as you were saying it, I was always on the inside. I always felt like I was always on the inside. I, every, uh, you know, we had family that would come over from Vietnam every year of eighties and nineties, and they would stay at the house and I would be inside because I spoke Vietnamese. And then when I got in the Marine Corps, I was born here. So I felt like I was, but the danger with all of that insightness is being afraid, as you're saying, of losing the, the, the Vietnamese families that I, that I grew up in and then um, not being part of white America. It, you know, um, and I got this is, yeah, this, I, I never thought about why I'm so cowardly about stepping up and, and voicing what I really feel up until today. Um, the, 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 the being the inside has been my shackle of, of uh, my culture and, and just being insulated in all of these safe, uh, safe zones of, of, of my identity. Well, let me just say, look, I mean, to be outside does not mean that you're alone. All right. Uh, okay. So one of the reasons why I feel like I, I can try to take up this position of being a truth teller and being committed to my own principles and all that is ironically, because I was raised as a Catholic, I'm, I'm, I'm basically an atheist, but I was raised as a Catholic. So I know Vietnamese, I know Catholic, Catholic, Catholic uh, lore and everything. And, you know, my, my feeling was always, Hey, I actually admire Jesus Christ. Here's a guy who was telling the truth, regardless of the consequences. He was both inside and outside, right? And he paid the price for that. But when you're raised Catholic, I felt like, hey, to be Catholic means you're willing to be martyred. You're willing to be sacrificed and to sacrifice yourself. That's what I saw with my parents, right? So I felt like even though I was not religious and not religious, I do believe in the idea of martyrdom and sacrifice for your mm -hmm. principles and your belief and your truth. But the other thing is that he, that Jesus Christ did not die alone. I mean, he died alone on the cross, but he forged a new community through what he did. And I think this is very important that I think people who are afraid of being cast out of whatever group they're in fear being alone. That's what it means to be in exile. You're, you're, you're thrown out of your community and you're, you're left to die. In the old days, you're like, oh, you're out in the wilderness. You're, you're going to die. But there's another way of thinking about it, which is that you can choose to leave and you can choose to find your own community and, or build your own community so that you're not alone. And I think that's what we've, what we've done as Vietnamese Americans. We've forged our own community so that we're neither Vietnamese nor Americans, we're something else. And so I think people forget that part. That is to, to step outside of a group doesn't mean that you have to be alone. To step outside of a group means you can find or build another group that is closer to what it is that you feel and what you believe in. And that actually is enormously empowering. 
because it doesn't mean that means that you're no longer shackled by fear to the group you're you're a part of. You can leave and be brave and and forge a new community that can do something different and something better, at least by by your standards. So I, I feel like I'm a part of movements. I feel like I have tried to find my own people, people who are closer to what I believe in, that I'm not stuck being a Vietnamese Catholic or a Vietnamese refugee or whatever. I'm not, I'm not stuck feeling like I have to go back to Vietnam to find out who I am because I can build my own family, build my own community. That's empowering. You spoke at a, it was at a um, college uh, event uh, a few years ago with uh, my Elliot. And one of the things you both talked about was um, without the pain um, inside of, of, of your life experiences, there would be no writer. Um, this idea of wars and humanity uh, has gone, um, have, has been a, a parallel for, for since we've, humanity has shown up on earth. Um, this diaspora culture of, of the Vietnamese, the Jews, the Ukrainians, and, and the list goes on, you know, without wars, I, and I don't think wars will ever go away, but without wars, um, this utopia that, that, uh, that, that you talked about, what, what would artists, what do you think we would create? Like when we have this wonderful way of raising our children and without any of the struggle that we had and, and the wars that we lived through, what, what kind of things will they, what do you think that they will um, create um, if there's no struggle? Well, you know, I, I have a creative son and I think, wow, do I want him to be a writer? Because for me to be a writer meant I had to like feel really weird and out of place and all these, you know, all these things. So I would prefer him to be happier. You know, I think it's hard, it's hard to be a, a writer, an artist, if you're if you're fully happy. There has to be some discomfort, some alienation, some difference of some kind that you're working with. And, you know, I think that going back to the war and diaspora issue, when you're, when you're forced to flee and you're, you or your family have suffered the consequences of disaster and war and so on, you're given a choice. The choice is, can you retreat back to the same mindset that produced the war in the first place? Again, that nationalist mindset, us versus them, and a lot of people retreat to that because it's very comforting. Or could you try to imagine a future that doesn't repeat the same dynamic that made you into a refugee? That's a little, that's a little bit harder, a lot harder to do. A lot do. harder. And so I think that's a choice that all of us get to make as people who have been cast out um, by history and by war and all that kind of thing. And so uh, I think that that's what I want to pass on to my children. Like I want to, I mean, with my son, for example, he knows that his parents and grandparents are refugees. He knows the words war, colonialism, the French, and that's just a starter. He's only eight years old. Um, but I think that I want to, you know, raise him with the knowledge of his past so that he knows why he's here in the United States. And he, he thinks of himself as an American, but also as a Vietnamese. Increasingly, I think he's more conscious of being Vietnamese. And I don't want him to think that way so that he'll want to you know retreat to some idealized notion of what being Vietnamese is. I want him to I want him to, to be aware that that his very existence is the result of uh, these terrible histories that preceded him. And I want him to make a choice. I want him to be aware enough to make a choice. 
And I'm not going to tell him what to do. I think I'll, I'll tell him what I think he should do, but it's up to him. And I hope he chooses the path of thinking about a future that is not bound by national identity and nationalism and resentment and these kinds of things that are attached to Black April, as we've talked about, because Black April, it's not about looking to the future. Black April is about looking to the past and being angry and mournful and resentful, I think, unless I totally misunderstand the emotions around this, this day of commemoration, you know? But Black April is, to the extent that Black April looks to the future, it's about, let's go back and take Viet- Vietnam back, mm-hmm. that we can build a country that looks like Westminster, California, which is completely dysfunctional, even though the Vietnamese are in charge of Westminster, right? I don't want that. So I, I, that's what I hope. And whether or not, you know, my children become artists or not is sort of irrelevant to me. It's, it's, it's really the issue of whether they can imagine themselves as people whose humanity is not defined by their ethnicity or their nationality, but their humanity is defined by their willingness to embrace other people and their willingness to sacrifice themselves for that idea of humanity as being something that's so capacious that it, in, that it includes everybody, but it also includes a recognition of our own failures and our own weaknesses and our own capacity to do terrible things. And I think Black April is deeply problematic for me also because the Southern Vietnamese who are attached to it absolutely refuse to recognize the possibility right. that the Southern Vietnamese might have done some things wrong. I'm not saying that they did all things wrong. I'm saying some things wrong. It's, you cannot say that. Instead, all the things that make us weak and vulnerable and frail, we project that onto the communists. Like they're the evil ones, and we're the good ones. That's just not the. That's just not reality. And so, Black April is an illusion that just perpetuates itself and makes us attached to our own victimization. And I don't want to be a victim, and I don't want to be deceived into thinking that we're all ideal and that every all all that all that's terrible is attached to our enemies and not to us this is such a fresh way of thinking for for anybody whose mind is caked into this idea of black april and you have so many friends and good family uh, members that are on this one track mind and this fresh way of th- it's not a fresh way really because if you've really paid attention to what you've been saying but you could still see Black April everywhere in social media, but we have to turn the page now. We have to really uh, say to ourselves, you know, um, this is the time to to really start thinking freshly about the future of um, of humanity, not just the Vietnamese, but just people of evolving to the to a place where we're we're not having to 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 divide the lines. Well, I think that's absolutely right. Because if we look at the wars that we've been through and are going through, we just say Afghanistan and Ukraine, everything that we've been saying, I think, applies to these two countries and the politics around them and everything. Um, you know, we look at Ukraine, we're, you know, we, the entire world, the West, that is Western Europe, the United States, is being pressured to think of this war as good versus evil. Right. It's a radical oversimplification. Now, we can be opposed to Putin. We can be opposed to Russian invasion and Russian atrocities. It doesn't mean that we have to buy into a worldview that says all that is evil and all that the United States and Western Europe and Ukraine represent are good. No, it's obviously geopolitics, as you know, as a Marine, are deeply complicated. There's lots of self-interest going on. And everything that we, everything that, that, that the American media 
and the Pentagon and the White House are, are saying that the Russians are doing, Americans have done pretty much all those things as well. So we just like, like, well, we just totally forgot that we did these things in Afghanistan and Iraq and Vietnam. Like our last act in, in Afghanistan was to sh- fire a drone missile that killed 10 innocent people, including seven children. We did that. We did that. Is that any different than the Russians going in and doing whatever yeah. they're doing? I don't think so. Well, you, you brought up a, a term right now. And, you know, this is another three hours that we get into that, what you just said, radical simplification. We are living in a world of radical simplification through the algorithms of, of our, our social media. Are we, I think we're fucked unless we can unfuck that radical simplification issue. Because otherwise it's, just polarization that creates monetization and ad dollars being, whether it's Twitter or meta, radical simplification is eating up humanity. Do you see, or do you see a way out of this? Yeah, delete your social media profiles. <laughs> I delete, okay, I'm honestly like, I, I'm human and all that stuff you talked about affected me too so you know during the height of the trump administration i had 90 something thousand followers on twitter and 90 something thousand followers on my facebook author page and i realized that a lot of the a lot of everything you said was true for me like i i would be validated by my fans and then i would like be egged on by them and i would feel good and then i would like say something stupid and people would attack me and all that kind of thing and and so that that is a very very bad dynamic you know it like feeds into the worst aspects of the human ego so i was very glad to delete twitter now the facebook author page is really relevant to to this podcast because for whatever reason my facebook author page the overwhelming majority of people were either Vietnamese Americans or Vietnamese diaspora or Vietnamese in Vietnam. I don't know how it turned out that way, but there was so much, you know, I would talk about some of the same things we talked about. And then on the one hand, it was very validating to think that there were like thousands of people, Vietnamese people, various kinds who were saying, Oh, you know, we, we we're, this is so important that, you know, Vietnamese person is saying these kinds of things. And then there were moments when I, when I was like, you know, I, I would also, you know, jump on the social media bandwagon and attack somebody or be high handed in some way or another. And I'm like, I don't like that. I don't like being this kind of a person. So I think that the the issue that you're talking about, about the radical simplification, the us versus them dynamic, uh, the, the, the feeling of affirmation when we belong, when our opinion is validated, which oftentimes involves demonizing somebody else, you know, attacking them yeah. on social media or worse. All of that very human dynamic that social media amplifies, and then you know it's, it's enmeshed in the politics of this country at the moment. We all have to take a step back. We all have to take a step back and figure out for each of us how we both understand and hate that dynamic, and then we can internalize it because it's so human to give into it. But the world seems like it's getting worse. I'm just so pessimistic about the algorithm and how it's related to radical simplification. You know, the nuances of long form conversations like what we're having is not, it's not being, and that's why I just have to keep doing this because the long form side of things is so important to really nail down a lot of the ideas. Well, I mean, what you're talking about is like, it's like climate catastrophe. Like, oh my God, if we think about the bigger environment, like, oh, like, I can't do anything about it. You know, I can't do anything about social media and the algorithms. I can't do anything about, about climate change and overconsumption and all that. And, you know, that's a separate conversation. 
but what we're talking about is like what each of us can do as an individual and in terms of building our own communities. Okay. We can actually individually walk away from this. No one's forcing you to be on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. You know, no one's forcing you right. to participate in the herd mentality. No one's forcing you to buy the SUV. That's up to you. You know, so let's start with our own individual choice, our own recognition of our own complicity. And let's take the next step, which is to, to remove ourselves from the things that are poisonous and then to build a community that provides a different kind of affirmation. So it's, it's you know, you're not, you're not forced to pick up your phone and just read Twitter. You can pick up a book instead. You can engage in your own long form conversations with yourself and with other people. So that's the first step. Viet, thank you today for taking, you know, our first step on this podcast. And I, I really appreciate the words that uh, you've shared with me today and all the thoughts that you've um, shared with me. Yeah. And I was like 90% sober during the, <laughs> I had a couple of cocktails before this event, honestly. So, but I think I came off as relatively sane. Hey, Ken, good talking to you. I'm glad we had this conversation after all these years that we've known each other. Uh, good luck with the rest of the podcast. and all Thank the you new, so much. And the continuing growth. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening.